But gentlemen, happy Father's Day. And to all of you, uh, thank you for joining with us today. The story was reported of two men who wanted to go duck hunting. The story is they loaded up a brand new Lincoln Navigator with gear and guns and a black Labrador retriever. And off they go, in their particular case, to Lake Michigan. Now, in the wintertime, Lake Michigan often is completely frozen, and so you just drive the vehicle out onto the lake, and we're talking ice that's too thick for just an ice pick or a drill. So one genius decides, we'll use dynamite. Because you got to get a big enough hole for the water to hold the decoys and actually for ducks to land. And, but he's thinking through this, right? A 40-second fuse. That's what we need, a 40-second fuse. And he knows you don't light the dynamite and run because you run the risk of slipping, falling. You may not be able to get away. The best strategy is you light the dynamite and throw it. So that's exactly what he does. But I remind you that there was something else along for this journey, a Labrador retriever. And as the dynamite is launched, so does the dog and moves so fast that literally the dog reaches the dynamite about the time it stops sliding on the ice, picks it up, turns around, and you guessed it, He's headed back to the two men. They start waving their arms and shouting and screaming, but the dog thinks, they're cheering me on. He just barrels ahead. One of them in desperation picks up the shotgun and fires in the direction of the dog. Think, see ice scatter as the bird shot hits the ice. Dog kind of pauses, but keeps going. Second shot is taken toward the dog. This time, it, it kind of really confuses him, and so the dog heads for cover, which on the middle of frozen Lake Michigan means a brand-new Lincoln Navigator. As the dog slides under the vehicle, his butt hits the hot tailpipe, causing him to drop the piece of dynamite. Dog scatters out from under the vehicle, which is really good thing because a few seconds later, two men and a dog are standing over a hole in the ice with a million bubbles of a Lincoln Navigator that is sinking to the bottom of Lake Michigan. By the way, insurance company said sinking a vehicle in a lake by illegal means of explosives is not covered under the policy. And the man had not yet made his first $700 a month payment toward such vehicle. Observation, just an observation, somebody should have thought that out a bit more. Which can actually be the theme of the text that we're going to look at today. It's not a text about dynamite. It's actually a text about something more powerful than that. Your life. Somebody should have thought that out a bit 
more. Now, the text we're using today, I would be willing to wager that a lot of you have never heard anybody teach on this because we are about to dig into the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. We're just going to dig in, and I think I can help us in the first few verses understand why maybe people tend to avoid Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, here's how it opens. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, no one questions whether or not Ecclesiastes is dealing with the subject matter of Solomon's life. Solomon would be David's son, a king, right? And so the question is, does Solomon write this or does some narrator write this about Solomon's life or is it a combo? And I think it could be a combo. The point is, the word here, teacher, this is not a preacher, which is often the case when you open a book of the Bible, you've got a prophet or a preacher who is, the, who is giving some answers. Um, the word here is not even actually the word as we would describe it, teacher. In the Hebrew language, you could think of a professor. That's the way I would describe it. And in this particular case, a philosophy professor. This is kind of like a a, a Socratic discussion. What he's going to do is he's going to push you towards some questions that hopefully will push you towards some answers. You could kind of think of Ecclesiastes as being the discussion question section for the rest of the Bible. He's going to ask us questions that lead us to realize that maybe some of the ideas we hold, even subconsciously, are not as solid as we think. So here's what the professor says, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, which is the point at which a lot of people just stop reading Ecclesiastes, right? The word meaningless, hevel, in the Hebrew means smoke or vapor. And he uses the word 38 times. The idea is putting your stock into something only to realize it's not solid. It's not solid. When suddenly everything dissipates like smoke from a blast of dynamite and it leaves you dissatisfied, it leaves you depressed, he says everything is like vapor, everything is like smoke, everything is meaningless. Verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. Couple of words here. I got highlighted for you. The first one is the word gain. It simply means profit. Think about if you're doing something after all the bills are paid, after all expenses are, what is your profit? What, what is that which is left over? That's what he's asking. He's saying your life is busy. You're working really hard. The question is, what do you have to show for this? And the ultimate question he's getting to in Ecclesiastes What is the reason for your life? Around here, we have a little phrase that we've been using for several years, what's your why? That's what he's asking. 
The phrase under the sun is key to understanding this book. When he uses that phrase, what he's talking about is life as you and I see it. Nothing beyond ourself in this life. In other words, no God, no heaven, no eternity. Almost think about life under the sun as us, and then life above the sun would represent God and everything that is eternal in heaven. And, and, and so he's saying, incredibly secular way of thinking, this is truly philosophical. If you're going to try to live a life excluding the possibility of there being a God, no heaven, no eternity, no touch of the divine, then okay, if that's the premise, then he says, I'm going to press on you. I'm going to press the choices that you make in order to live a life under the sun, no God involved. I'm going to press you on those decisions, and I'm going to show you they're not solid. They're not solid. For example, I'm just going to give you two out of this first chapter today. But some people, for example, if they're saying there's only life under the sun, there's no God involved, then how am I going to live life? How am I going to find meaning? They would say something like this. I will enjoy this world while I can. I'm going to enjoy this world while I can. In the philosophy world, it's a very hedonistic view. I'm just going to enjoy it. And so the professor begins to unpack this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. He's saying, you're right. You know what? You're going to die. You're going to die. You're not here forever, right? And so what happens is people say, okay, well, if this is not forever and there's nothing to look forward to, then I'm just going to live it up. I'm just going to enjoy this life. You, You only live once. Now, sometimes... That looks like what what I would call crass hedonism, which means you're just living for pleasure and you will even take advantage of other people in order to experience that pleasure. But it doesn't have to look like that. Sometimes what it looks like is more of what I think of at at the end of crimes and misdemeanors. Woody Allen says these words. He says, we're all faced throughout our lives with agonizing decisions, moral choices. Events unfold so unpredictably, so unfairly. Human happiness does not seem to be included in the design of creation. It is we who give meaning to the indifferent universe. He says, you got to find joy in the simple things like family, work, and from the hope that future generations might understand more. Okay. He's saying, come on, you you need to find meaning in in, in something as as simple as, as writing a poem or enjoying creativity or playing with your child or going for a drive. He's saying, you gotta look for meaning in those simple moments. Enjoy those simple moments. Don't ask the big picture of what this is all about. Just try to find the joy in those simple pleasures. And when you hear that, I mean, it sounds kind of noble. 
Sounds kind of lovely, sounds kind of dignified, but the philosopher of Ecclesiastes will not let you stand there. Verse 8. All things, he says, are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. We, instead of using eyes and ears language, we would say the heart. That's what we would use in our culture. We would say the heart is never satisfied. No matter how much you continue to experience, no matter how much you continue to see, no matter what you continue to hear, right? Even if you spend your whole life jumping from joy to joy to joy to joy, eventually the facade crumbles and you are left with this nagging gut feeling, this is all smoke. It's just empty. So he says, learn to enjoy it while you can. Sounds like a good phrase. The problem is you can't because it will never, ever actually be enough. And we would say, well, maybe it's not enough yet because I haven't gotten enough yet. You know what I'm saying? Maybe if I could enjoy more of life, this would work. Thus the professor, verse 12, he reminds you, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He's like, you do remember who I am. I'm the king. I'm the king, which means I have everything money can buy. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon had all the food, all the drink, all the houses, all the buildings. I'm going to do this as much in code as possible today. All the lovers. I'm going to remind you that if you read some of the rest of Solomon's writings, he had a thousand options every night. And he says, it was all smoke. It was never enough. And so we watch people in our culture live for a weekend, but Monday comes back quickly. We, we watch us live for pay raises and promotions and the next gig or the next idea. And Solomon's like, you don't understand. The more you see and the more you hear, the more you realize it's not enough because there always has to be another one. There always must. If this is your meaning, if this is where you find meaning in life, you eventually realize you really are climbing this ladder that is propped up against the wrong wall. So he says, think about it. He says, I challenge you to think about it. You're going to live, you're going to make your meaning for life to enjoy this life while you can. Think about what that means and what it doesn't mean. So if enjoying it while you can doesn't really pan out, then how about another alternative? So here's the second one I want us to think about that he addresses in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
If, if I'm not going to live for pleasure, then how, how about I'll leave this world better than I found it? If I'm not going to live for, for enjoyment or pleasure here, then this is going to be my, this is my meaning. I will leave this world better than I found it. Can I tell you, this phrase sneaks in to funerals that I am a part of all the time. It's the language, it, it is the language of, oh, we, we love so-and-so, and they touched our lives, and they left this world a better place. And again, it can sound very noble. It can sound even very religious. It's the person who chooses to live this life and do the right thing, right? To, to, if there's injustice, then they will, they will fight to correct it. If there's an opportunity, they're going to work hard to, to improve it. Thus enters the professor, verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. He's like, you want to leave this world better than it is, and you, you, you want to make a difference in people to remember you. He's like, nobody remembers. <laughs> nobody remembers. 40 years from now, nobody's going to remember you. And even to read that in Ecclesiastes, we're like, I don't know that I like this guy. 40 years from now, he's like, nobody's going to remember you. How much do you remember about your great-grandparent? Like, okay, I know their name, and I remember meeting them a time or two. I remember a little bit, but how much are your kids going to know about your great-grandparent? Very little, because they never knew them. Okay, you got four million bucks to give to your alma mater. They'll probably build a building in your honor and slap your name on the side of it. So maybe you'll get another, right, 40 years or 80 years or even 400 years, but at some point the building goes away. And let's say that you really do something just extremely extraordinary and impacting the world. 4,000 years from now, some archaeologist is going to find basically nothing more than the fact that you existed but the mark he's saying if life under the sun is all there is can we really find meaning in making a difference and the professor of ecclesiastes is saying stop romanticizing this thing we are a forgettable drop in an even more forgettable bucket now there are some people, some people who actually realize this. Can I tell you that? There are some people in this world that you talk to them and they're like, I know this world's going down the tubes. I know it's not going to change. This world is headed down the tubes. I know that even though there's no meaning though, I'm going to choose to live as though there is meaning. In philosophical, uh, it's, it's a very existential kind of argument. I, I know what it is, but it's like I'm just going to pretend like it's not. And I'm going to continue to live like there's meaning. I'm going to defy the senselessness of the universe by living with courage and morality in the face of all that. And the professor says, I tried that too. Verse 17 then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. 
He's like, I tried to approach this with, with as much thought as I could to, to make a difference. But then he said, I also just let, it, it was almost as though he just rebelled against it all. And it's like, even though I know this is the case, it, he's like, but that didn't work either. So someone says, won't somebody do something about destroying the environment? Right? Let's leave it better than we found it. Unless we do something, the earth will be, become uninhabitable. And the, and the professor says, who are you kidding? Civilization is doomed. Planets come and, and go. What you're really asking is if we all act really foolish and don't take care of where we're given to live, can we actually speed up the process a little bit? But it would sort of be like you're on the Titanic and the Titanic is already sinking into the ocean and the captain comes running to you and says, I have terrible news. The boiler is about to explode. And if the boiler explodes, we're going to go down two minutes quicker. And your response is, that's a tragedy. No. Your response is, who cares about the boiler if the boat's going down any way? That's what he's arguing. What gain is it? What profit is it? His, his point is to say the question is not ultimately can we stop environmental disaster. His question, his point is, is there only life under the sun? And if there's only life under the sun, then none of this matters at all. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. It's going nowhere. It doesn't matter how bad you are in this world. It's going nowhere. That's his point. If there's only life under the sun, then it's all nothing. And our response to that tends to be, well, I just hope that I can make the world a better place. And the professor says, give me a break. You are like the person on the edge of the shoreline and you are digging your foot into the sand, trying to make as deep of an imprint as you can. And three waves from now, your footprint is gone. Whew. Don't you love Ecclesiastes? He's saying, come on, think about this. Think about this. Ask yourself some questions here. I mean, if somebody came up to you right now and said, you need to go stand out there in the parking lot, you would say, why do I need to go stand out in the parking lot? And, there were the, and if they said, doesn't matter why, you just need to go do it, you, you would go, no. And I think the professor would argue, why will you ask why for small things like that? but you're not willing to ask why when it comes to your life. What is your life about? If you're not asking it, then you're just running on instinct. He, he eventually concludes in verse 18 when he says, for with much wisdom comes much, much sorrow and uh, more knowledge, the more grief. And it's just this picture of, he says, the more I experience and the more I accomplish and the more that I know, the more nauseating I get because it's just empty. Now, what in the world is he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's pushing you to understand 
There is no middle ground here. Either there is a God who created you, sustains you, and will judge you, or it's all futile. It's all empty. It's all nothing. It's all vapor. He's saying it's one or the other. There is nothing in the middle. Because how can you say that there is no God? Uh, We are here just by accident, right? We're here because we're an accident. And one day we're going to annihilation. There will be nothing. So we're coming from nothing and we're going to nothing. But we're going to say, while I'm here, I'm going to work for human rights. everybody's valuable and everybody should be, we fight for human dignity. It should be justice for all. And the professor will go, why? Because it's nothing. And who are you to decide what justice looks like? (laughs) It's all nothing. See, this is my argument. I've heard much of my life people at times throw in Uh, My face, Christians can just be naive. Christians are simple-minded. Christians, it just requires this blind faith. And here's my statement. Are you kidding me? If you're going to tell me that your origin is insignificant, like you just got here by accident, and you're going to tell me that your destiny is insignificant, you're just going to annihilation, then come on, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then at least have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. Because there is no middle ground. And right now you're going, this professor is a bit extreme. I don't think I like him. And I would say his job is not to make you like him. His job is to take you to the extreme of your conclusions and see either there's life above the sun, which means there's meaning, or there's no life except under the sun, which means nothing means anything. In Greek philosophy schools throughout the decades, they would They would argue, what's the meaning of life? What's the reason? What's the reason? What's this all about? And the the word that they would use is the word logos. Logos, that's the Greek philosopher's term that means what's 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 the reason? What's the logic? I put it this way. If I said to you something like, I need you to take a look at... um, I'm, I'm trying to make popcorn, but every time I make popcorn, it tends to either burn or it's soggy. And you would say, what? And I say, well, come here and take a look at it, and, and I actually bring out a coffee maker. And I said, every time I make popcorn, it either burns or it's soggy. And you would look at me, hopefully, and with kind words say, that's a coffee maker not a popcorn popper. You're using it for the wrong logos. 
its logos is not to make popcorn. Its reason for being is not to make popcorn, it's to make coffee. And so the philosophers searched and they searched and they debated and they debated. And it's like, if we can just find the logos for life, then we can conform our lives to that which it is meant for. And in the most beautiful way, you turn the pages of the New Testament and the apostle John opens his gospel with a philosophical framework where he drops a stick of dynamite. And this is how he says it. In the beginning was Logos. Now, in most of our English translations, it says, in the beginning was the what? Word. But the Greek word for word in in that is logos. That's the word. In the beginning, John says, was logos. And logos was with God and logos was God. Logos was with God in the beginning. Through logos, all things were made. Without logos, nothing was made that has been made. And like a stick of dynamite, On the landscape of history, all of a sudden, he's like, this is what you've been searching for. In verse 14, he goes on to say, the Logos became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. In other words, here's the clarity for us. Here's what we know today. Logos is not a truth brought by a person. Logos is truth that is a person. The logos, the reason of life, it's not some abstract principle or theorem or idea or ideal. The logos is Jesus. It's Jesus. In him, we find our reason for life. In verse four, he, he, he continues, the, in Logos was life and that life was the light of all mankind. He goes on to talk about how Jesus shines the light into the darkness. In other words, he shines into the bleakness of living life under the sun. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the reason for life. You were meant for me. Life under the sun has meaning because God, who is above the sun, came down to live under the sun. And by his grace, he makes it possible that we could be connected to him and he gives us eyes to see everything now has meaning because it reverberates his glory. If life under the sun is all there is, no God, no heaven, no eternity, then there's no meaning. It's, it's just, there's nothing. But if there's life above the sun, then everything under the sun has meaning. Jesus changes how we see everything to where now, We can enjoy the things of this world that he's blessed us with, but it's bigger than just searching for pleasure in those things. Suddenly, with Jesus, food and drink becomes a foretaste 
of a heavenly feast that is to come. And intimacy in this life becomes a a picture of the nearness and the closeness that he tells us will be one day forever and ever. See, now that I know Jesus, I know why spring comes after winter. And, And I know that when a seed dies, it brings a flower that's for a reason because it tells me about the ultimate reality that God brings life out of death. When I talk to someone, it's not a meaningless conversation anymore. Because what if in my conversation, I get to declare a Jesus who is real and loves and forgives And what if in that conversation, God turns that person's heart toward him? A billion years from now, me and that person will be sitting in heaven, remembering the day God let us have that conversation. My point is suddenly with Jesus, There is no part of my day that is meaningless. There is no part of my day that is just happenstance. Every part of every day, every breath he gives me, every conversation, everything I experience, suddenly there is meaning with him. Right now counts forever. If there is no logos, then everything is nothing. But if Jesus is the logos, then everything is everything. There is no middle. Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, it reads like this. Some days it's better to be at a funeral than a party because this life is not all there is and it's while you are alive that you can do something about that. Here's how I translate that verse for us today. Some days it's better to endure a sermon on Ecclesiastes than to be at a party. Because on this day, if God reminds you that this life is not all that there is, that there is life above the sun, a God who made you, a God who sustains you, and a God who one day judges all, hmm, today is when you can do something about that. God, I pray for those who today need to call to you. I pray for those who maybe for so much of their life have been searching and God at times been been close to just giving up and, and so the search for pleasure goes on and the search for meaning goes on and trying to make a difference goes on. I thank you God today that even though these words are harsh, God it is exactly what we need to be reminded of, God, really pushed to face. God, I pray for those who today who need to call out to you, God, in faith, the God who came to die for our sin and rose from the dead, God, today would you give them courage to call to you. 
But God, I'm also praying for your kids today who even though we claim that we have found our reason for living in you, there are some of us who are still searching for meaning. And it looks like we're still running after every pleasure that we can find. We're still clamoring for for acceptance and acclamation and God achievement. God, I'm asking you to awaken your kids just as much today to the reality of the meaning that we find in you and you alone. God, will you give us wisdom to know what to do with the dynamite that you have given us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray it.